0: Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates
1: to Tele-Hell. The trouble with first impressions is that you only get to make one. Or at least one per entity you're trying to embark or launch. There are a few factors that actually make a first impression while doing a new TV show and even harder tightrope to walk. Number one... Anything that you do in that first episode can and will set the pace for years to come if you make it that far. So you better get a lot of things right right away. Number two, no matter how good your intentions are, critics, viewing audiences, and even the intended network itself can be as fickle as the wind. And number three, there are no second chances. Unless, of course, you're Seth MacFarlane rubbing it in Fox's face after unexpected DVD sales save your career. Or Dan Harmon coming back from a year with a metaphorical gas leak in it. Or one of the many, 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 many reboots out there that are a bigger plague these days than Frogs and Locusts. With that being said, one of the easiest ways for a TV show to hit the fast track to series is if a show is based on an already successful property elsewhere. Like, say, for instance, a successful movie. Now this is not to say that this formula works every single time it's in play, but a number of successful, well-remembered or even cult classic TV shows had their roots in a theater near you. Whether it be M.A.S.H., the Buffyverse, or Mr. Tibbs telling off Archie Bunker instead of Rod Steiger, as long as television existed, they would find a way to capitalize on the success of that other moving picture show. Which brings us to one of my all-time favorite movies. Suffice to say that Clerks became a surprise darling of the movie world when it was released in 1994. So much so, that when the broadcast TV networks were trying to find newer ways to hang on to their audiences being swayed to the thriving and youth-baiting world of cable, Touchstone Television thought to themselves, well, if the kids enjoy it, maybe millions of other people might enjoy it too. And then they reminded themselves of the source material.
0: Put it where it doesn't belong. My pipes need cleaning. All volume eight. I need your <coughs> worshiping. <coughs> my eight shafts <coughs> clean. <coughs> gargling naked. <coughs> buns three. <coughs> <and> socks. <coughs> Eileen. Huge black with pearly white. Girls who crave
1: Yeah, girls who sorry crave about all the bleeps here, but too, even though we can swear actually. around here, Pink we bleeps. still kind of have and, uh, a family rating to uphold, and, and suffice to say, we also yep. have a little bit of dignity. Oh, wait a minute, uh what was that called again? Then again, so did the ABC network around 1995. In doing so, they took an iconic, gritty, foul-mouthed, but still fun black-and-white indie comedy with growing popularity, and it got colorized, neutered, Bleached and laugh-tracked to the point where the show would eventually turn into a mutant version of its original self. This is the story of a different kind of Dante. In tele-hell. I'm
0: not even supposed to be here today.
1: The tale of how Kevin Smith's micro-budgeted indie epic came to be is a story all in itself, and is probably worth seeking out in various DVD or book releases elsewhere. But for the sake of this story, we'll summarize. After a stint in film school, Smith and longtime producing partner Scott Mosher decided to make an independent movie using what little resources they both had. In Smith's case, it was access to a local convenience store he worked at for most of his youth. Smith wrote a script that drew from some of his own personal experiences, and after maxing out all of his available funds, was able to make the movie for only $27,000. After a numb slog through trying to seek distribution, Smith decided to enter the film into festivals instead. After gaining traction from various indie film critics, Smith then took the film to the grandest prize of all, the Sundance Film Festival. From there, Smith was able to sell the film to Miramax, run by a total creep who deserves to be in the actual hell. But I digress. Smith wound up making 10 times what he invested into the film and was able to start a career thanks to his indie efforts. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to teach you boys and girls listening at home about a little thing called acquisition. An acquisition is sort of a fancy way of saying buying something. In the case of the corporate world, it would be a company buying another company or entity in order to make said company a little more prosperous. In this case, Miramax acquired the rights to the movie Clerks. Now, Miramax has the rights to the movie and anything else that winds up circling its orbit. spin offs merchandise, you name it. Then, about a year or so after that happened, the Walt Disney Company acquired Miramax in an effort to further distinguish itself from its family-friendly lineup. They certainly did that once they owned Lock, Stock, and Barrel, the company that was responsible for acquiring a film with this classic dialogue.
0: Not how much money the average makes per hour? What's a He's the guy that cleans out the nudie boots after each guy jerks off.
1: So now, in a technical matter of speaking, 1990s Disney now owns the rights to Clerks. Disney is also the parent company of Touchstone Pictures, the company's so-called adult branch of movies that may be considered too grown up for Disney to handle. One day, whoever was in charge of Touchstone got on the phone with the head of Miramax and said to him, Say, I just realized that your company once purchased an indie darling that appeals to Generation Xers of all ages. With a little Disney magic and some elbow grease, I think I can turn that movie into a hit sitcom that crosses all demographics. What do you think? To which the head of Miramax snorted, So a principal deal was set to turn a movie that, once again, had dialogue like this I'ma
0: fuck this bitch, I'ma fuck this
1: bitch, I'll fuck anything that moves! into something that would potentially air on Tuesday nights after Home Improvement. At least, that was the hope. Touchstone commissioned the pilot for the Clerks sitcom, with the intent for it to air on the ABC television network. Which, coincidentally enough, was one year shy of itself being gobbled up by Disney but also currently had a majority of its prime-time programming being produced by Touchstone, so it seemed like a natural fit. There was, however, one problem with getting the pilot's production up and running. Kevin Smith, the architect of the original movie, was a little busy at that moment while putting together his second feature film, Mallrats. The Thing. Is this dork made of orange rock like the rest of his body? It's a superhero. So with the one guy who probably knew more about the View-A-Skewniverse unavailable to help out on the pilot's production, the people at Touchstone thought to themselves, he's just a rookie filmmaker! We're the professionals that put on Home Improvement, Boy Meets World, and the Golden Girls! We can make this a hit without him! Or as it would turn out, without even letting him know that it was happening in the first place. But we'll get to that part in a second. A big portion of what made the original movie the success that it was were characters that were relatable to people in the Generation X demographic. You had Dante, originally played by Brian O'Halloran, a guy who wants nothing more than to escape his dead-end job and start his life. I can't make changes in my life like that.
0: If I could, I would. But I don't have the
1: ability to risk the the comfortable situations on, on the big money and the fabulous prizes. His best friend Randall, played by Jeff Anderson, a guy who is the ultimate personification of the letters D-G-A-F.
0: Well, if you think that's offensive, check this out. Oh. I
1: think you can see her kidneys. Dante's girlfriend, Veronica, played by Marilyn Gigliotti. Someone who wants to see Dante live up to his potential, even though she sucked 37 dicks.
0: Who's <clears throat> leading this mob?
1: Dante's ex-girlfriend, Caitlin Bree, played by the late Lisa Spoonhauer, someone who Dante still holds a candle for even though their relationship is arguably turbulent. Do you always talk this weird after you violate a woman? And of course, the great chorus of the movie and official mascots to the view universe, world-class slackers coombe drug dealers Jay and Silent Bob, played respectively by Jason Mewes and Smith himself, who, despite pretty much hanging around the convenience store day after day and causing trouble wherever else they go, still managed to drop some pearls of wisdom once in a while.
0: You know, there's a million
1: fine-looking women in the world, dude, but they don't all bring me lasagna at work.
0: Most of them just cheat on you.
1: So with that, the question is posed... How can the brain trust at Touchstone Television attempt to duplicate a relatable group of twenty-somethings who aren't 100% sure of what they want to do with their lives? A smart thing to do would have been to hire the original cast themselves, because even though the movie turned them into indie icons, they weren't quite full-fledged stars as of yet. So while Muse was busy making mall rats with Smith, and Gigliotti and Spoonhauer's whereabouts were unknown at that point... O'Halloran and Anderson both auditioned for the parts that they have already played on film, which, now that I'm saying this out loud, seems akin to having Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau try out to play Oscar and Felix on the TV version of The Odd Couple, instead of Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. So in that regard, maybe it made more sense to start fresh with two new actors anyway, but not before word got to Smith that they were putting on a Clerks pilot without his involvement. Thanks to a conversation between O'Halloran and Anderson, Smith found out about the planned sitcom, and immediately put filming of Rats on hold so he could give Touchstone a piece of his mind. When were you gonna tell me this? Can I assist in any way? How the hell could you do this without letting me know first? After all, they're my goddamn characters! All of Smith's complaints were reasonably valid ones, but they would only be heard by deaf ears. Production of the pilot would go on without Smith's involvement. Back to the casting. Incidentally, Jeff Anderson would actually be cast in the pilot, only instead of playing his signature Randall, the geniuses at Touchstone thought it might have made more sense if he played Dante and somebody else played Randall. That somebody else's name was...
0: Relax! Don't eat it. When you want supper, Relax!
1: That's right! Just a few months before he became an SNL cast member, a then up and coming young comedian named Jim Brewer was added to the cast as the new Randall. To which Anderson probably thought to himself,
0: Oh, fuck you, fuck you, pal.
1: And naturally, he left. Still to fill was the part of New Dante, and with O'Halloran also out of the picture, Touchstone reached into its bag of central casting hopefuls and recruited the star of one of its most recent teen-targeted movies. The star of that all-time classic, My Boyfriend's Back... and very little else... Andrew Lowery. He may be dead... ...but his heart still beats for the girl that he loves.
0: I would love to go to the prom with you. Go for
1: it, Pretty damn active for a dead guy. My Boyfriend's Back, rated PG-13. If you squint hard enough... Maybe you can believe he could be a suitable replacement for Dante, but we won't know for sure until we get to see the actual finished pilot, which we will get to after the break. Throughout history, they have been a part of our American life, men
0: and women who have made it their mission to serve their fellow man. They've worked hard enough. Isn't it time? They had their own movie, Clerks. This job would be great if it wasn't for the customers. I, I don't bother them and they don't bother me. I could do without the people in the video store. Do you have that one with that guy who was in that movie that was out last year? You should hear the barrage of stupid questions I get. What do you mean there's noise? You mean I gotta drink this coffee hot? You'd feel a hell of a lot better if you just rip into the occasional customer. <laughs> you're a clerk, paid to do a job. You can't just do anything you want while you're working. Hey, are you open? No! What kind of convenience store do you run here? Miramax Films presents you think anybody can see us down here? Why? Do you want to have sex or something? Uh, Can we?
1: Clerks. Just because they serve you doesn't mean they like you. Since this turned out to be an unaired pilot, we do not have an actual air date for what we're about to go over. However, the production slate at the beginning helps us fill in the gaps on, at the very least, when the project was completed. May 31st 1995. Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise was the number one movie in the world. The New Jersey Devils were on their way to winning their first Stanley Cup, and in a room filled with executives from Disney and the ABC network, Touchstone's attempt to appeal to the young people of the world was about to be unveiled. Also, about the title slate before the show starts, there's a disclaimer on it that states in all capital letters, NOT FOR AIR. After sitting through this pilot several times, I honestly wasn't sure if they meant not to be transmitted on TV airwaves, or do not expose this program to any levels of oxygen over fear of contamination. We'll assume the former for now, but don't be surprised if 100 years from now, this pilot was used as a biological weapon. The titles roll. And while I'm slightly disappointed that they didn't use the actual movie theme for the show, they at least still used a song from the movie's soundtrack. Making Me Sick by Bash and Pop. But that nitpick is nothing compared to the opening shot of the program. In the movie version, true citizens of the Universe know that 99% of the action take place at the Quick Stop Convenience Store and RST Video of Leonardo, New Jersey, respectively. For the benefit of this being a podcast that doesn't rely on visual images, we pause a mere five seconds into the show to inform you that neither store is being used as the opening exterior shot. Instead, we get to see what looks like a strip mall that just happens to have a convenience and video store sitting next to each other, but it's not Quick Stop or RST. Not even five seconds into the show's cold opening and we're already off to a good start, don't you think? If you can't even get the basic detail of the establishing shot correct, what hope is there for the rest of the show going off without a hitch? But maybe this is just a knee-jerk reaction from watching the source material several hundred times. What really matters is how the dialogue will be, and how the cast chemistry will work with each other. So, after that shock to the senses, new Dante, new Randall, and... Wait, Wait, who's this third guy in the ice cream uniform? These are some really great items, Sandra. Thank you. You're welcome. Can we pause this again, please? Okay, seriously, who is this guy and why is he here? I mean, granted, this was 1995, and Smith's universe wasn't fully developed yet. Hell, he was already in the middle of filming the second chapter to it. But when the powers that be take it upon themselves to wedge in a new character out of nowhere when there's already an established universe full of pre-existing characters, it sort of feels like they're trying to poochie things up a little.
0: What's that name again? God.
1: Oh, you know who I'm talking about. The name's
0: Poochie D, and I rock the Kelly. I'm half Joe Camel and a third Fonzerelli. I'm the Kung Fu hippie from Gangster City. I'm a rapid surfer,
1: pity. Making even less sense is the fact that this is supposed to be the first episode in a continuing story originally based on the source material, of which this character never existed in, and yet he's still being established as one of the leads as though we've known him all along. It just doesn't add up. And we're not even a full minute into the show. And there's there's already two strikes against it. And we haven't even heard any dialogue yet. Anyway. Dante, Randall, and the Ice Cream Man strike up a conversation with a pre-famous Carrie Russell, who at the time was fresh off her first tour of duty with Disney thanks to the 1990s version of the Mickey Mouse Club and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. You
0: seem to be very health conscious, yet every day you nuke yourself in order to attain an unnatural tan. You're one of those people who thinks that tanning causes cancer, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and we start off with cancer jokes. Hilarious. Maybe they just wanted to do something similar to the first movie because it too started with cancer jokes, but at least those worked. For
0: good, good, good cancer motion! Cancer motion! Cancer motion!
1: This mercy. is followed immediately by something that can be considered both a highlight and a low light at the same time. Jim Brewer trying to lighten the situation a little. Oh, Todd, come on, give me a break, lotion? There's nothing in this stuff that could- ow, oh,
0: what- OHH, OHH, I'M MELTING, I'M MELTING, I'M MELTING, YOU'RE WEIRD.
1: And that, I'm sad to say, is the high point of Brewer's contributions to the program. Anybody who's ever watched him during his three-year run as an SNL cast member knows exactly what we're in for. But for the unestablished, let's just say he kinda goes at three and a half speeds. Either as a stoner, a stoner using a funny voice, a stoner using that same funny voice to the point of absurdity, and go boy.
0: Yeah, man, let me get up. Yeah!
1: Let me get up. Which, thankfully, he doesn't do here, but you could tell that germ of a groundbreaking achievement was on its way. Act 1 of the show starts with a little goofing around between Randall and the Ice Cream Man, who we forget to mention is played by one of the more durable character actors of this day and age, Rick Gomez.
0: <laughs> hey, do you guys ever think about spending more time in your own stores? Dante, customers need us, they know where to find us. <laughs> really? Is he's the ice cream guy in here. Haven't seen him. <laughs>
1: The random football playing in the store seems slightly contradictory considering the energy of the real Dante and Randall, and no one else, is arguably a little more muted. The only physical activity we see them do that even looks remotely fun are the rooftop hockey scene and the trashing of the store near the end of the movie. Speaking of which, we get to see the reason why the store gets trashed in the movie as we say hello to this version of Dante's girlfriend, Veronica, played here by character actress Noelle Parker.
0: So I guess this isn't the day you're getting on with your life. Hey, I'm gonna get on with my life. I'm just waiting for the right thing to come along, that's all.
1: Okay, now we have to pause this a third time. Ah! Correct me if I'm wrong, but near the end of the movie, didn't the two of them sort of end things on a bit of an exclamation point?
0: Ow! What'd you do that for? I didn't want to go and send you pussyfoot around and see that slept behind my back! Veronica, I love you! Fuck you!
1: (laughs) Thus leading to the aforementioned trashing of the store.
0: Oh, fuck you! Fuck you, pal!
1: And yet, here they are some two years later on the upswing. But I know there was a passing mention at the end of the movie where the real Dante says he's gonna try to smooth things over with Veronica. But once you pull a move like that, it would be nothing short of miraculous for them to even be on speaking terms, let alone back together, even if there was an ample supply of alcohol involved. So now, between that, the fake Quick Stop, and Mr. Ice Cream Man, I'm going to take an early stand before things go any further and declare this show to be non-canonical to the rest of the View universe. Non-canonical, 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 non-canonical! Clearly, whoever wrote this pilot only seems to have rudimentary knowledge of the movie at best. How else can it be possible for the guy to screw up so many established details? Anyway, I swear there's a plot in here somewhere. Not Veronica tries to pin down what plans the two of them want to do tonight. It doesn't go too well.
0: Do you have any big, vague plans for us this evening? I don't know, maybe food, some sort of visual entertainment? Sure, we could just, you know, hang. You didn't get the night off, did you?
1: I forgot to ask Mr. Stubb. I only
0: reminded you five times! Honey, I'm not blaming you!
1: (laughs) Now, given the benefit of the doubt, this is another thing that, if you squint at it very carefully, it almost feels like a part of the give-and-take between the real Dante and Veronica in the movie. Granted, we could have used more conversations about snowballing and sucking 37 dicks...
0: 37! My girlfriend sucked 37 dicks! In a
1: row? ...but that would go against the wonderful world of Disney. So, we move on to the not-RST video, where Jim Brewer, to his eternal credit, at least tries to invoke the spirit of the real Randall Graves. Crying game. She's a man. Presumed
0: innocent. Wife did it. 1984, they shoot him. Six
1: dollars. Okay, that's one point in the show's favor. But there's still some ground to catch up on. That being said, in addition to the Ice Cream Man, we get another new character shoehorned into the proceedings. Dante's father, played by veteran character actor Larry Brandenburg. Because, as we all know, the one thing that was missing from a movie about slackers in a convenience store is an in depth look on said slackers' family life. Though, to the writer's credit, this actually does kickstart the episode's plot a mere five minutes into the show. Hi, Dad.
0: Somewhere out there, an architect is saying that to his father.
1: <laughs> Let me guess. You got me
0: another job interview with one of your friends?
1: Well, technically not a friend. Just a guy I met on the elevator who uh, asked me why I was sobbing. (laughs) Naturally, your name came up. (laughs) Droll attitude towards his own son aside, I'm not saying any character development is bad, but in this case, it sort of feels unnecessary. It would have been a little more convenient if, say, a tertiary character who had some sort of connection to all the other ones helped get the ball rolling. Not someone who's aggressively passive-aggressive towards his own son in a way that others tend to roll their eyes whenever the black sheep of the family does something stupid, but you know it's their major characteristic. I... think. Hey, look, I'm not a psychiatrist, leave me alone about that. We end Act 1 with a return to the video store, where Randall and Ice Cream Man do their best Siskel and Ebert impression, or possibly give a critique to the very show that they're appearing in at that moment. This
0: movie blows. See, I think it sucks. Parts of it suck, parts of it blow. This part sucks and blows.
1: Act 2 starts with... wait. Who's this guy that's obviously doing a lot of shoplifting?
0: Putting on a little weight there, Ray? No. It's a baggy
1: jacket. (laughs) Let me guess. This guy is supposed to be our replacement for Jay and Silent Bob combined? Well, at least I'm starting to catch on. But that's second to the fact that... How could you do clerks without Jay and Silent Bob?! Like I said, they're not only the Greek chorus of the View Askewniverse, but, at times, they're the mortar that holds the bricks of every other character together in said universe. Without them around, everybody else is just a loose brick, and in the wrong hands, a loose brick can do more damage than Alanis Morissette literally yelling Ben Affleck's head off.
0: "...Anyone who isn't dead or from another plane of existence would do well to cover their ears right about now."
1: It never ends. Moving on, we actually do get to meet a tertiary character who continues to get the ball rolling. An old frenemy of Dante's from high school. Dante? Cliff? My God. (laughs) Do you work here? Yeah, don't be fooled by all the glitz. And we also find out about this piece of jealousy fuel. Veronica!
0: Cliff! Hi!
1: Wait, you, you, you two know each other?
0: Yeah, Cliff took out a girl from my accounting class. Not that she was my first choice. Well, Cliff, I would really love to stand here and chat forever, but we're getting ready to close. Thought you're open 24 hours. Yeah, but not at
1: night. (laughs) And again, if you adjust the fine-tuning a little bit, this could almost pass as something the real Dante and Veronica could be arguing about in the movie. Minus the part about the 37 dicks. In a row? But because this is a far more sanitized TV show, we just get a back and forth that not even teen-oriented shows that aired on Saturday mornings in the 90s would ever touch with a 10-foot pole. And it's because of this award-lacking dialogue that the Clerks pilot earned itself a nickname through the years. Saved by the Clerks. Just be glad that Mark Paul Gossler isn't in this show either. Because as we all know...
0: Zag Morris is trash!
1: After the couple's latest fight, counterfeit Dante laments to goat boy Randall about the possibility of losing Veronica, again. But remember that this is non-canonical. You
0: know, here I am, I'm just hanging out, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. While Veronica, the only thing in it that makes any sense at all is walking away.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, I was thinking about pie. (laughs) With little else to do about his life, False Dante makes a call to the insurance company that his father passive-aggressively recommends to him, much to copycat Randall's dismay.
0: Dante, don't do that. Come on. I mean, think about all that you'd be missing out on. You'd be missing out on peeking in on them midnight aerobics, right? (laughs) Our little afternoon strolls in the parking lot? Dante,
1: Dante... (gasps) Bagel hockey, <gasps> Which I guess is about as close to a reference to the rooftop hockey game in the movie as we'll ever get. But nevertheless, Dante makes the call, and I'll leave it to you to guess how Brewer reacts to it without actually seeing it. Oh, let me put it to you this way.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the fart sounds that you hear Brewer make, and the audience seems to be eating up for about ten seconds flat, is that of simulating hanging oneself twitches and all. The perfect, hilarious image to conjure up when you're considering being put on ABC's schedule on a night full of family comedy. Okay, so nobody's perfect, but the point remains. Moving on to Act 3, remember how we briefly saw young Carrie Russell at the beginning? Well, she's part of a B-plot now, as Randall tries to be the wingman to Ice Cream Man. Hey,
0: I solved everything. Yeah, what's that? how to get you and Sandra together? having a mixer! I invite all the clerks from all the stores, right, listen. She'll be here, you'll be here, she'll get drunk, uh-huh. huh? You'll start to look good. i better order more beer.
1: Yeah. Dante wants to go to the party, but his interview with the insurance people is the following day. So he passes on the party, once again to pyrite Randall's disapproval. Oh, please, huh? My fatherland's
0: Jumbo Jets hammered out of his mind.
1: <laughs> so at the party, we get another scene with future Felicity. And I'm not gonna lie here. She, along with Jim Brewer, may be the pilot's silver lining thanks in part to how dedicated she is at playing somebody vapid, even though she's done far more compelling roles ever since.
0: So anyway, this guy falls
1: asleep in the tanning booth, and I totally forget about him. I don't find him until like five hours later when I smell something burning. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. A career woman and you can cook." (laughs) This goes on for a little while, until Ice Cream Man earns a sliver of a chance to score with soon-to-be Elizabeth Jennings.
0: You know what I've always wanted to do? Sneak into the tanning salon at night, and do it in one of the beds. That could be fun. (laughs)
1: Meanwhile, Dante's holding the fort as we see the return of our imposter Jay and Not-So-Silent Bob hybrid attempt to lift more goods from the store and set what remains of the plot in motion. Are we building an igloo, Raymond? (laughs) No, I'm bringing it to the party.
0: Oh yeah, what do they need ice for next door? No, not the loser party, Cliff. Cliff's having a party? Yeah, I'm surprised you're not going, you know Veronica's there. What? Yeah,
1: and you know her and Cliff are looking pretty chummy. The gang hightails it to the party, just as Ice Cream Man was about to seal the deal with... whatever the hell Russell's character name is in the new Star Wars movie. I haven't seen it yet. And naturally expresses disappointment over not getting any.
0: You know me so well.
1: You not you. Come on. Let's go, Todd. We gotta go. No!
0: <laughs>
1: Enough. We get to the party, much to non Veronica and Cliff's surprise. From there, Dante recommends taking the party elsewhere.
0: Well, with something wild we could do. I don't know, you know. Paint Bookley Tower just like in high school? Yeah, that, that could be fun. But I think that. Hey, everybody, Cliff here was just saying
1: how much fun it would be to
0: paint Bookley Tower. What do oh! you think?
1: <laughs> and if we learned anything from any TV show involving vandalism, you know that the cops are right there waiting. While they're waiting, Cliff's true colors are exposed to the surprise of no one.
0: Him! Him! He do it! You made me do it! There! There! Now do you see? What? what? <laughs> this! I had to show you what a weasel he is! I knew that! What, you did? What, do you think I'm blind? It's obvious! Hey! I'm right here! <laughs>
1: Realizing that it would mean ruining one's more promising future, Dante takes the heat, and for some reason, takes Veronica down with him, even though she was initially there to stop everything in the first place. Oh well. Corner, meet paint. While sitting in the police car, Dante and Veronica reflect on what they just went through. Well, at least you gotta admit, this isn't your usual last night of a relationship.
0: Who said it's our last night?
1: Oh, you mean you're not mad at me?
0: Oh, I'm mad. In fact, you're lucky there's a cop in the car. I'm not going to break up with you. I'm going to be pushing my
1: luck here, but why not?
0: Because I saw a glimmer of hope tonight. No, <sighs> so, when it really mattered, you came through like an adult.
1: The cop is so moved by this last-second shoehorning in of a moral that he decides to let both of them off scot-free, proving once again that all the problems in the world can be easily resolved, with no consequences, by the way, in a little less than 20 minutes. Speaking of which, the show's end tag sees the gang blissing themselves out over surveillance footage of Not-J-Bob pretty much picking apart the remaining carcass of the convenience store, set to the tune of another song off the original movie's soundtrack. Soul Asylum's Can't Even Tell. Jenna Elfman's future husband proceeds to take apart the security camera. And that's not a joke, by the way, that guy really was Jenna Elfman's husband. Cut. Print. That's a wrap. On the Clerks sitcom pilot something that could have had potential, but because of a rampant overdose of the Disney magic in use, it never saw the light of day until just a few years ago, when the pilot that we just went over made its way to torrent sites, and eventually YouTube, where it lies in repose to this day. Suffice to say, the show was not picked up, and everybody in the Magic Kingdom eventually breathed a sigh of relief. So where in the View of Askewniverse does the Clerks pilot snowball its way in Telehell? Join us as we snooch to the nugga-nugga-dooch in our nine circles! Limbo, Lust, Gluttony, Greed, Wrath, Heresy, Violence, Fraud, Treachery! Let's get the obvious one out of the way. It's an otherwise unaired pilot that failed to see the light of day on the TV networks, so its place in limbo is all but a certainty. But that's second to the fact that what we just went through was not clerks at all whatsoever. It was clerks in name only. Everything else about the pilot felt like drinking a can of Coca-Cola, but they replaced it with New Coke instead. Once the pilot leaked, dedicated fans in the Askewniverse made their feelings known, declaring the pilot to be one false prophet after another. Declaring it not just an unwatchable fraud and complete and total heresy compared to the original movie, but that same fraud and heresy invoked a much deserved wrath among the fans once they caught a glimpse of it. Add to that the fact that the studio involved didn't want the person who created the source material to be involved in any way. I know that's how most movie-to-TV adaptations are supposed to roll usually, but even those get the benefit of bringing the movie's creator on as a consultant at the very least. Instead, because of how cocksure Touchstone Television was, they and the overall production became victims of self-inflicted treachery. They clearly didn't know what they were doing, and it also wouldn't surprise me if the executives responsible for putting the show together never actually saw the movie in the first place. The Clerks sitcom pilot earns five out of nine circles of tele In the age of Generation X, the Clerks movie was, and to many still is, seen as a beacon to the disaffected as well as the hope that maybe somebody out there was willing to listen to them on something, or anything, in a way that could have been relatable. The sad thing is, as is the case with many failed pilots, if the right people and situations were involved, it could have been something that lasted for a couple of years. Instead, the powers-that-be pretty much took the bones of a failed TGIF reject script that was lying around, and tried to brundlefly fly it and the movie together to give us something so disconnected from the original That the executives had no choice but to assume the role of Gina Davis and give that Brundle Fly what it deserved in the end. But don't worry, folks, this tale does have a couple of happy endings. Rick Gomez, Jim Brewer, and especially Carrie Russell would go on to have long careers, and Kevin Smith wound up making and producing several dozen movies and podcasts over time. In fact, Just as Smith reached the first of his many peaks, guess who decided to come crawling back into the View universe? Here's one way to have fun this summer.
0: Is anybody here? Is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? Stop it! 30 seconds. You owe me five bucks. I don't have five bucks. Take it from the register. Hey, for more summer fun tips, watch Clerks.
1: snug Brand new episodes of Clerks, next after the Drew Carey Show on ABC. Snuggin'. The very network that rejected the Clerks pilot in 1995 now wanted to work directly with Smith on a new Clerks series. This time around, Smith and his View Askew production company would be directly involved, even going so far as to bring along most of the original cast to appear in it. The thing is, between all the projects Smith was up to by that point, he didn't want to do a standard sitcom. In the wake of the animation boom of the late 1990s, it was decided to turn Clerks into an animated series. That show may have only lasted about six episodes, but it still gained a cult following among fans of the Askew Universe, animation, and subversive humor alike. And since we have a little time left over, Why don't we... We're sorry. Due to circumstances beyond our control, the script to the rest of the episode was lost on its way overseas. Luckily, the episode was finished by the Korean animators. We hope you enjoy the new ending. And since we have a little time left over, why don't we have... Big American party! Everybody, disco dancing! Lots of fun! Good time for all! I'm having very good time! Robot dancing? Oh no, police! Quickly in here! Who is driving? Oh my god! Bear is driving! How can that be? Podcast producing studio!
0: Finish the episode! Ah! Finish the episode!
1: Ah!
0: Finish the episode!
1: Ah! He big being mean! Here we are! Help us! We will stop you! There is no escape this time! No! It is you who will not be the one escaping! Now, Pikachu! Please don't sue! (laughs) <laughs> Kevin Smith with a lawsuit in his hand. Cease and desist. I don't think so. This is a parody. Tom Cruise. Oh, no. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Show me the money. Oh, no. Next time on Telehell, before Seth McFarlane. Before Mel Brooks, but just slightly after Pigs in Space, a parody emerged in a galaxy far, far away. All right, you all heard that. Let's start scouring the universe. Until then, if it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. Of course, the usual ways Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehel.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including Castbox.fm, Podtail.com, ListenNotes.com, MyTuner-radio.com, and Blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe. And share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehel Podcast.